Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Luke Van Donkersgood from PostNL. Hey, man. Hey, Young. Good to be here. Yeah, so we've bumped into each other a few times now in the last uh, couple of months and uh, most recently at the AWS Community Day in the Netherlands. How have you been? Yeah, good. Well, there's a lot to do around serverless and around event-driven architectures. So it's a, a good time to be working in that area. So we'll talk a lot more about that today, I guess. And it's kind of funny because we're both serverless heroes. Uh, I, are you a serverless hero or a data hero? Uh, serverless hero. Uh, Alex, uh, the breeze, a data hero. Ah, yeah, right. But we only met, I think, for the first time in person about a month ago. Yeah, that's right. That was at the GoTo EDA event, uh, which I think was one of the first event-driven architecture-focused conference uh, I've ever seen. And uh, I thought it went down really well, and there were some really good talks, and it was really good for me to catch up with a lot of people that uh, I've kind of known online and or you know, from back when I was in, living in London. And uh, both of us live in the Netherlands as well, in the Amsterdam, but we don't really see uh, face-to-face uh, until then, which is kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, and then... We're both living in in the Netherlands and then we meet in London. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the community is global. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, let's maybe get back to the EDA aspects a bit later. I guess for those listeners who are not familiar with PostNL or doesn't live in the Netherlands, can you maybe just uh, give a quick introduction to PostNL uh, as well as also what do you do at the PostNL? Yeah, sure. So PostNL is the Dutch postal service the National Postal Service. For listeners abroad, it's like USPS, but then for the Netherlands. We cover the what's called the Benelux, so Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. And we're one of the largest logistics companies, well, at least the largest in the Benelux, and one of the largest around globally as well. Of course, not as big as parts like DHL or UPS, who have a real global footprint, but still pretty high volumes. So for example, last year, on average, we deliver 1.2 million parcels per day. And I say on average because, for example, we don't deliver on Sundays. And in the November, December period, it's way busier. So it's actually pretty high volumes. And PostNL has always been pretty innovative company, pretty open to change and open to new concepts and new ways uh, of work. And I think they sort of always had to. They're a very old company, 220 years old. I think 1799 is the origins of what is now PostNL. And of course, in that entire time, the logistics world changes a lot as well. When you go from horses to trains, from trains to cars, from cars to trucks to airplanes, the internet and everything around that. So I think that willingness to change really stems from that history. One of the more recent changes is, I think, in 2012-ish, where PostNL said, well, we're running these data centers, we're running all this, these servers and these operations, but it's not really our core business. Should we be doing this? And they started looking at the cloud, and they were one of the very first major enterprises in Europe that really embraced the cloud and closed all their data centers and moved to AWS. And this is in a time where hardly anyone was really using the cloud at scale here in Europe. So then they didn't have the data centers. And then a few years back, they said, well, the next step for us is to start building our own logistics software, because that's how we are able to compete with the other logistics providers. 
And if we're going to build our own software, if we're going to build an actual engineering community at PostML, then what is the technology foundation that we want to build that on? And since they already had this pretty intense partnership with AWS, the answer was serverless. So I think this was then 2018-ish, where they said, we're going to build our software and all the software that we build will be serverless. And well, there's a lot more to tell, but that's really how we got into serverless. And currently we have a very large, large landscape with, well, millions, billions of invocations on serverless technologies. Okay, 2018, that's still pretty early days. I remember back then there's still a lot of uh, things that need to be worked out, a lot of kinks. I remember when I started uh, working with serverless back in the 2016, I think that's when you just had API Gateway being supported in 2015. So it barely just became like a usable thing that you can build entire systems around and no, no one knew how to do a lot of things like observability, how to do you know, config management and uh, event-driven architectures properly. All of that has uh, gradually sort of come into it. And it's very interesting to hear that uh, you guys have, as a really large company, made an early decision to go into serverless. So I guess um, it's been now uh, four years uh, since you made that decision. How would you sort of categorize the state of uh, serverless within PostNL? Would you say most of your workloads are now running serverless? And uh, how would you sort of uh, categorize in terms of the developer experience when it comes to using serverless at massive scale, both in terms of volume, but also in terms of, uh, I guess, complexity and also the organization level? Yeah, well, there's a lot of organization and a lot of culture that you need to build around serverless or build, becoming an engineering company around serverless. So one thing we have is uh, the Cloud Center of Excellence, which is a platform team that provides services around AWS, but they also control a number of, let's say, mandates. And one of them is the fact that we cannot spin up an EC2 instance, right? It's and They block it and there's no exceptions to that rule. Another one that I really like is we cannot use, we cannot create any IAM user. We can only use roles. And that also forces you to apply best practices, which is value. And there are a number of other constraints that they implement as well. But they don't come up with the constraints because that would be a sort of top-down approach, maybe a bit iron-fisted, and that's not really the approach that works. So what we did instead is build a community of the engineers, all of the serverless engineers in the organization, and we define charters. And charters are topics that we want to make decisions on, would want to standardize on. Now, one of the examples is CICD. So before everybody used their own kind of a CICD, some used GitLab, some used Jenkins, some used the code built and code pipeline, uh, others used uh, GitHub. And there was this sense like we need to standardize around this topic so that everybody uses the same technology and we can share knowledge and share best practices and so on. So we started the charter with a number of engineers and they came up with a list of requirements like what should our CICD tooling be able to do, came up with a short list of tools, compared them, and then came up with the best solution for our company, which happened to be GitHub Actions. But when they got to that result, when they made that decision, then it became mandatory. So now every new team that is building software has to use GitHub Actions. That's a really important part in, I think, the culture and the organization to make sure that those decisions are made by the engineers, by the values and the requirements that they have, give all the engineers the opportunity to provide input 
and to make those decisions. But when the decision is made, then it's, well, nothing is final, but pretty final, at least for a couple of years, so that we standardize around it. And one or two additional examples are from a infrastructure as code perspective, we standardized on the CDK. So we don't have Pulumi, we don't have serverless framework, we don't have raw CloudFormation using CDK and infrastructure as code is, of course, also mandatory. We standardized around a dev test acceptance and production workflow. And currently, we're looking at standardizing around observability tooling. Okay. So I guess in this case, uh, you know, in terms of uh, hiring, because uh, you've got all of these uh, decisions, these frameworks um, in place already, which I think does help in terms of education and onboarding if every team is doing the same thing. But in terms of, uh, I guess, the hiring, in terms of uh, bringing up uh, new joiners up to speed, do you guys have uh, some kind of process in place already? Because uh, obviously serverless is still not as widely adopted in the wider developer community. And I've heard from many places where, you know, hiring has been a real pain because uh, it's hard to find people with uh, existing experiences using Lambda and other serverless technologies at uh, you know, decent scale. Um, how do you guys just kind of approach this uh, problem of uh, you know, education, but also in terms of recruitment? There are a few things about that one. From a recruitment perspective, I think reaching out and giving back to the community is a, is a very important part. So for example, the fact that a few of us were in London at the EDA summit to learn, but also to talk to other people and tell what we're doing at PostNL and the the challenges and solutions that we have, but also at meetups and community days and conferences to share our learnings and allow others to grow on based on our experiences is super important. But it also really positions PostNL as, let's say, an interesting company to work for because we have interesting challenges and problems and the skill of processing a billion Lambda invocations in a day or having, for example, our IoT department tracks, I think over 300,000 roll cages, where they are and what their status is and how they are moving. Those are super interesting problems to work with and to solve. But it's important for us to let the world know that these are the kinds of problems that we're solving and how we're solving them from a recruitment point of view as well. And I think we're actually doing pretty well so we often hear people saying well we want to work at PostNL because we have heard about the great things you're doing I myself am an example of that because I joined PostNL because other people told me that PostNL was an interesting company and also the fact we've mandated the use of serverless is very attractive to a lot of engineers because if you're saying well we're a tech company we do some serverless but you might also end up in a team where you're still doing EC2 or maybe you're doing Kubernetes or whatever, then that is not as attractive to some types of engineers as when you're saying we do serverless and you will only be doing server. So that story helps. But then there's also, of course, the education part because, well, finding people who actually have all the experience that we need is one thing. But building that experience is another. And one of the things that we did is we started a training program. It's called Tech Together, where we have informal learning sessions where we just share internally our, our learnings, but also formal learnings like workshops and organized trainings. And in that, we also have a partnership with AWS called their Skilled Gills program, where, for example, every half year they do a three-day workshop on advanced architecture in serverless. So all the new engineers that we get, we send to the workshop and they just spend three full days building stuff in Lambda, SQS, SNS, EventBridge, Kinesis, Step Functions, and all the other uh, serverless tooling. 
Okay, very interesting. And I guess the now that the the zone kind of just dismantled the Amsterdam office, so that's a quite a nice pool of uh, engineers now you can tap into uh, in the Amsterdam area as well. Yeah, definitely. So, <laughs> yeah, if you're hearing this and you're interested in working at PostNL, then make sure to reach out. Yeah, I'll put the links to your careers page in the links for the show notes as well. So anyone who's interested can always just go to that. And I guess you are hiring not just in Amsterdam and the Netherlands, you're also hiring potentially remotely. That is a bit of a topic. So we'd like to, but as a very large enterprise, we're also bound by some procedural stuff and legal stuff. So I think the current limitation is you have to have a Dutch residence to be able to apply. Okay, right, right. Gotcha. And the residence part is actually important because we do have a very international uh, culture, especially in the engineering community. So it's not like you have to speak Dutch. You don't have to be Dutch. You don't even have to feel Dutch. The only thing is you have to live in the Netherlands. And also, I guess Netherlands has got a really good uh, immigration policy, especially for highly skilled workers. So that was one of the reasons why the zone picked Amsterdam as the location for their sort of next office uh, back a few years ago is because of the fact that it's so easy to hire international talent into the Netherlands and give them work permits and stuff like that. So I want to switch uh, to maybe talk about uh, how you're managing your AWS accounts because I imagine you've got lots and lots of accounts and then I imagine you're using AWS organizations. So are there any tools that you're using to, I guess, make sure that uh, every account is created the same way? You've got consistent uh, base line infrastructure for, I guess, like your own platform on top of the base AWS uh, construct. Yeah. So I can't tell you all the details because this is not the team I am in, but the, the Cloud Center of Excellence, the CCOE I mentioned before, is actually an engineering team and they built the applications and built the integrations that do exactly this. Well, the SCPs that I mentioned before and the organizations and the organizational units and AWS SSO and the integrations with our other SSO or our central SSO provider is all their responsibility. Uh, For example, they deploy stacks and stack sets into our accounts. They also, for example, bootstrap all of our accounts for the CDK and they make sure that we're all following the same standards. But how they actually implemented that, well, I can get one of their engineers on your talk as well, on your podcast as well, but they can tell you more about that than I can. Okay, sure, sounds good. Um, And I guess in that case, uh, maybe what we can do is to talk about uh, your event-driven architecture, because I've heard you talk about this uh, several times and obviously doing massively serverless uh, implementations of event-driven architectures uh, at PostNL scale has some really interesting challenges. So maybe let's uh, start by just painting us a picture of what your event-driven architecture look like. Yeah, sure. So PostNL as a logistics company is sort of by default kind of a a event-driven business because we're only responding to external inputs. So a consumer might want to send a parcel and they register that parcel with one of our APIs, one of our websites. So that is an event, parcel registered. Then we pick it up with a van and that's an event, parcel picked up. And then we bring it to a sorting center and we offload the parcels and that's an event, like parcel delivered to sorting center. And then we move it down the sorting lines, we scan the parcels in our automated system Whenever 
where a parcel passes a camera, that's an event like parcel detected or observed. And you can think of a million other events in that system. But again, it's all pretty much event driven. And that actually, I think, well, I, I wasn't at PostNL at that time, but I think that also helped shape the idea of that PostNL should build a event driven application landscape because it's the best fit to our business. And another part that is taken into consideration there is the fact that we're very seasonal and seasonal not only on a yearly basis, like December is busier than June, but also on a weekly basis. Tuesdays are busier than Mondays, Sundays there's nothing happening. And on a daily basis itself, like there's a lot of events at four o'clock and five o'clock and not so many events at 9 p.m., right? So everything is seasonal and that makes it very logical to have a, well, a serverless event-driven architecture as well because it just it follows the events it scales with the events and you only pay for the events that you actually use and you don't pay when you're not using them so that's i think the rationale of our landscape and then if you look at the landscape itself we have a large number of applications and application teams i think 30 or 40 of them and they all have their own responsibilities like one is responsible for interaction with the consumer one is responsible for the sorting lines one is responsible for planning the trucks i mean it, it's actually kind of obvious or kind of logical if you think about a logistics process like we all see the the personnel trucks driving down the highway somebody has had to make a plan on where it's going and where it needs to be and which parcels need to be on it. So there's an application responsible for that. But since they are all largely event-driven, you do need some sort of integration between them. And what doesn't work, and that's not something that we found out, but that was found out way back in the 70s and 80s, is if you're going to create a mesh where all of the applications talk to each other constantly. Uh, you have this web of integrations and nobody knows who's actually talking to whom and who's responsible for what and what those events look like. And also you don't know what will break if you change something. So bad idea, that's not what you want. Instead, you do something, you centralize it. And classically, the solution would have been an enterprise service bus or ESB. There's a whole history of the on the ESB that we'll not go into now, but it makes a lot of sense from a historic perspective, but it doesn't make so much sense now anymore because the main issue with an enterprise service bus is the fact that all the integrations on that service bus need to be built. So you have to have a team that actually connects sending applications to consuming applications. And that's one of the issues that we ran into. And one of my main responsibilities to solve is to have a central event broker. So the solution we came up with to make sure that we can build those integrations a lot faster is to build a central event broker and a self-service event broker where all of our producing applications can register their events and publish those events onto the event broker and have consumer applications discover which events are available on that event broker and then subscribe to those events and stream them to the applications that need to receive them. And now you don't need a central integration team anymore to manage those integrations because it's a self-service portal. And all of those applications are really decoupled because the producers only need to send to the event broker. And you can get a very dynamic landscape of events. And there's a lot of additional features that you can build by having this, this central event broker pattern as well, because it allows you to, well, centrally monitor and maintain all those integrations, also see what kind of patterns emerge. 
and to control the reliability and the things like replayability and retries in a central place and really maintain the, the stability of your landscape that way as well. So I guess uh, you have, uh, I guess in terms of your account topology, you have uh, one account that hosts the central event bridge bus. And then the, do you then also have a satellite account for different teams and different um, services have got their own local event bridge bus and then using the event bridge sort of event forwarding so that the local events are forwarded to the central bus? Uh, or do you do a more sort of direct uh, from your application, you push always to the central bus? Uh, how does that sort of, I guess, the connectivity work? Yeah, that's a good question. And the, the main philosophy that we follow is we want to offer a very low friction kind of integration. So that means we don't want to tell our users what kind of integration pattern or at least integration technology they should use. We don't want to force EventBridge onto them. So what we do instead is for every producer of events that registers their events with us, we allow them to choose the technology that they want to use to deliver those events. So that might be SQS, that might be SNS, but actually a very common pattern is also HTTPS, which I personally am not the biggest fan of because I think, well, HTTPS is of course a very open standard, but it's also not, not the most efficient or not the best integrated into AWS. But we also have a lot of customers, internal customers that are not on AWS. So they just choose HTTPS as their protocol, then we deploy endpoint with all the, of course, authentication and authorization configuration on top of that. And then they can publish to that endpoint. But other applications who are in AWS might choose SQS, and then we deploy a queue and allow their AWS account to publish there. And then it's just an IAM integration. So it's really open to whatever they need. And we do the same at the consuming end. So if the consumer has, for example, their own event bridge, then we just publish the messages onto their event bridge. If they have an HTTPS endpoint, we do an HTTPS post to that endpoint. And we offer a lot of integrations that way. Okay, I see. So now I see what you mean when you say event broker, as opposed to just spelling out event bus. <laughs> I see. Okay, so I guess in this case, so the fact that you've got so many different uh, options developers can use, uh, that filter is also going to make certain things that you mentioned harder to implement at the central level, things like uh, schemas and schema validations, and just, I guess, having a schema registry that everyone can access, especially for people that are not on AWS already. So how do you go about uh, approaching these kind of problems? Yeah, one of the main ways in which we sort of diverge from a standard event bridge or event broker import implementation is the fact that we do a lot of validations and schema validations on our events. So event bridge by itself can only detect the events that were published and maybe detect the schemas that were published on it, or you have to do it yourself, but it cannot stop messages from being published if those messages don't match a specific schema. And that is a feature that we offer and is really important to us because for the the consumers that connect to our central event broker, we want to be able to make the promise to offer the guarantee that the event that they subscribe to will always match the schema that they well that they saw when they uh, that they agreed upon when they actually created that subscription. And the way we do that is forcing the producer to tell us 
what the schema of their event will be, and then validating that all the events that they publish to that endpoint actually match that schema. And this is maybe the biggest part of the work that we do, because there are not that many ready-to-go tools in AWS to build this. So this is actually where there's a lot of Lambda code, a lot of Lambda functions that do those validations, that process the rejected messages and make sure that they get returned to the sender. With one exception where we can use use a lot of AWS services. And that's actually in the HTTPS post that we just discussed because API Gateway does have built-in schema validation and we use that ext extensively. So I guess that that also then brings up an interesting question about uh, uh, versioning. So I guess in that case, uh, you know, if I was to introduce a breaking change or renaming an attribute on my event, I guess uh, in that case, uh, because your schema validation doesn't allow me to break the consumers, which I think is a good thing and something that uh, more people should be doing, uh, what's the process in that case uh, for that team to introduce this change they want to do? Things like, I guess, for simple renaming, you can just add a new attribute with a new name and keep the old one around. But what about if you want to do a more sort of structural change to the, the schema of the event? <laughs> That's another very good question. And of course, uh, one of the also central topics to the event broker. So the way we structured our application is you could say a data layer and a control layer, or what we say is we have the backend, which is the system that actually processes and transports messages. And we have a management application where users go to configure things. And that management application, it's like, well, your basic REST API and business logic setup. So it has cognitive for user management, API gateway for API routes, DynamoDB to store data and Lambda functions for logic. And there's some step functions and some, some SQS in there. Pretty basic setup if you're familiar with serverless. And all the, all the business logic resides in that application. So users... Well, they also have a front-end, a website, but that's just a thin front-end for this API. So they go to the to the website and they register their events there. Well, when it's a new event, they're free to define whatever they want because nothing is break. But they should be able, as you said, to do updates to those events. And, and that's what we call non-breaking changes or minor updates. And those are adding fields, making optional fields required, removing optional fields, maybe reducing the range of values that you can support. And we have a whole list of things that we consider minor non-breaking changes. And they are allowed to do that and publish them because you're not breaking the contract, you're extending the contract. And that's, that's fine. Part of what you need to do to make this work is to tell the consumers that they should be pretty lenient in what they accept, right? So you're saying, this is what we're going to send. We might send more, but we're sending at least this and they should be able to deal with that. But that's generally not a problem. But as you said, there's also situations where you have breaking changes, where you're significantly changing the structure of your event. So what we then do is if you try to apply a breaking change on an existing version, we just give you a 400 error. You're not allowed to do this. You have to create a new major version of the event. So you get, I don't know, state changed V1, and then you have to create a state changed V2. And the very initial version that you make is always V1. So we always apply a major version, even if you only have one. And that version can then be completely different structured, sort of doesn't have to be any relation between V1 and V2. But as a producer, you're now responsible for sending both V1 and V2, as long as there are consumers linked to V1, subscribed to V1. 
And there's a common saying in event-driven architectures where they say producers shouldn't know their consumers or shouldn't have to know their consumers. And I want to add some nuance to that statement because it's true from a technical standpoint. As a producer, you shouldn't care what kind of application is consuming that event or how that application is built. But from a business and from a procedural perspective, it's super important to know who your consumers are, especially if they are consuming a specific version and you might want to choose to stop sending that version. So what we do in the event broker and in, in the management API on top of it is visualize who are the consumers to this event, but also since we're all within PostNL, what is their contact info? What is their email address? So you can reach out to them and say, hey, I introduced V2 and I want you to migrate to V2. Can I help you in that migration? Can we do that together? Because I, at some point, want to stop sending V1 because I don't want to maintain two versions. So there's a lot of business and process thought about that behind that as well. Yeah, I like that caveat because uh, what my code doesn't have to know, I may have to know because I'm a developer. I'm the one that's uh, you know, building these things together. Um, so I guess in that case, uh, in terms of uh, enforcement, uh, making sure that I don't introduce uh, things that are not considered non-breaking change or maybe things that I didn't think is a breaking change, but it is for my consumers. Are you using anything like uh, async API spec or consumer-driven contract testing, that kind of thing to make sure that uh, when I am the publisher, the event publisher, I'm making changes, I am always going to be alerted before I push my change out that, hey, your change is going to break the customer or would you just rely on entirely on the, the broker to tell you at runtime that when you try to send this event, it gets rejected and then you get sent back to me for some notification, some notes that you know, this is breaking change? Yeah, so we don't do customer-driven contracts or async API. We simply have business rules on what we consider breaking and non-breaking. But what's important there is to see the distinction between the front end, the management API, and the back end. So in the management API, as our control layer, we do validation before we actually do a rollout of those events into our backend systems. And the validation simply rejects the change following those business rules. So we came up with a list and I think, well, it maybe took me a day to think of all the business rules. It's not in the end that complex, but it's things like if a field is marked as required, it can never become optional because that's breaking. The consumer is expecting it. If a field is marked as the type is a string, it can never become an integer because the consumer is expecting it. And so there are a few other rules there. It becomes more interesting when you're looking at things like ranges and lists. For example, in JSON schema, you can define a field as being either a string or an integer. So a list of types that is supported. That you can add that to the schema. There's you know, nothing wrong with it from a technical point of view. So if you have a type list that says it's either a string or an integer, and you change that to it's only an integer, that's not a breaking change. Because you're telling the consumers, I'm going to send you either a string or an integer. And then from that moment on, you're only sending integers, but your consumer is already capable of dealing with that. So it's been a bit of a search uh, to, to figure that out. But I think that rule set is working very well for us. 
Okay, and what about just in terms of uh, testing the event-driven application themselves? One of the challenges people often have is that uh, in terms of testing EDAs, that uh, is pretty much relies on kind of some kind of polling. That uh, you fire events and you're expecting some side effect to happen, and then you have to just poll and see if the the role gets written to a database or uh, some API gets called. What kind of approach have you guys uh, sort of developed towards testing event-driven applications more easily? Well, easily is a good, uh, well, adding the word easily to the question makes it a very difficult question. Okay, because maybe easier <laughs> instead of easily. <laughs> because testing serverless environments is not easy. I think it's one of the trade-offs, right? So you can get into a discussion. People say serverless is too hard and this doesn't work and that doesn't work. And I don't have all of these things that I do have when I run on EC2. And this is one of those topics. Of course, the favorite answer of any architect on any question is it depends on what you should use. And so it is with serverless. So you get a lot of benefits that we discussed earlier about operations, about scalability, about decoupling and so on. But you do lose some benefits in, in how easy it is to test. So we are trying to find our way in standardizing our testing. And I've given a talk about this uh, a while back. I think you can find it online in which I show how we create Lambda functions to test specific parts of our infrastructure, component testing that, well, for example, puts a message on a queue and then verifies that a Lambda function has run and that the result of the Lambda function is what you should expect. But I have to be honest, it is quite a lot of work to write those tests. And it's quite a lot of infrastructure that you still have to maintain. And I haven't found the ideal solution there. What I do want to add is one thing that is really helping us is thinking about contracts. So in the events, in an event-driven architecture, you can define almost all of your integrations in the form of contracts. Like this is the literal event that I will send out, or this is the literal event that you will receive. And, and on APIs, actually, it's, it's the same. And if two applications integrate with each other and they agree on the contract, then you don't need to do an entire chain test in which all of these applications need to be tested together. You only need to test, does the producing application send out events following the contract? And the consuming application only needs to simulate events following the same contracts. Yeah, I agree on many of the things that you said. The testing serverless, its applications in general, not even the event-driven applications are, are tricky. And it's one of the first things people ask when they come to serverless is you know, how do I test this thing? And there's uh, this, uh, I guess, a false dichotomy that you have a test either fully locally or fully remotely. And there's, in between, there's this massive drop-off in your feedback loop, which drives people crazy. So it's definitely something that uh, needs to be addressed. And uh, that's actually why I'm putting together a new course, just focus on serverless testing because uh, all my other materials, the people are you know, doing them, but then a lot of time they just want to get an answer on how do you do testing. And I think this um, thing about uh, testing just the contracts, the input and output for individual components in that event-driven application chain, I think that's very useful. But uh, I still hear a lot of from the, some of the customers and students that uh, there is value in testing the whole chain because even though you're testing the individual components, you know the behavior is correct, but you're not really testing the configurations, like for example, event patterns. Maybe your code is doing the right thing given the right event, 
but you've got a bug in your event pattern somewhere along the whole chain, then you won't know until someone realized in production that you know, this thing never fires. Why is that? Uh, and if you can test the whole chain, then you can catch those kind of problems earlier. And I think that's where you know, testing becomes really quite tricky when it comes to event-driven applications that uh, you know, for those long chains, the, it's really difficult to sort of estimate and have a, re a sensible timeout for how long do you keep polling before you decide, okay, this is not working. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So a few things is I think you need almost all of the test testing types that you can think of, you're going to need them. So your Lambda functions, you're going to do unit testing. The internal workings of your application or your service, you're going to do some sort of component testing. For your standalone service, you're going to do some service testing, contract testing, and maybe integration testing. Multiple services together, you're going to do some integration testing. An entire landscape, you're going to do some end-to-end -end testing. And the balance of what you need is, I think, determined by your appetite for errors or your appetite for failures. Like if you're building a web shop and one in, in 10,000 users gets a 503 error and because of that something doesn't work, might be fine. But if you're in, I don't know, a hospital and one in 10,000 medical devices stops working every now and then, that's a way bigger problem. And in the latter scenario, you're going to need much more testing and much more edge case testing than when you just run a web shop or a blog or whatever. So yeah, it depends on your industry, depends on your appetite on how much testing you need and how much time you're going to invest in building those tests. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. And uh, certainly those industries that are dealing with human lives, that uh, they tend to have much longer development time and testing cycles as well compared to, uh, you know, just putting out a new blog or a new website, mobile app, that kind of thing. Okay, so I think that we're coming up to time and really want to thank you for taking the time to go into a lot of details about uh, how Enterprise now is using serverless, but also how you're approaching event-driven architectures at a pretty big scale. Is there anything else that you want to sort of mention before we go, anything that you're doing personally or Post now? is doing as a company? Yeah, one thing that we didn't touch upon, but I think is a very hot topic right now is observability. And that's really a thing that we're focusing on, like in distributed applications, how do you even understand what's going on? And I think that also relates to testing because you can use your observability data to actually validate that your test works. And actually that can give you more insight and maybe more an event-driven insight than just polling and seeing, hey, did something arrive? Instead, you're pushing your observability data and responding like, oh, I saw this event happening and that's exactly what I needed to know. Those worlds overlap and I think that's really valuable. I'm a very big fan of open telemetry because it's an open format and because it allows you to link new services into it without locking you into a vendor. And what I'm really hoping to see in the next months and maybe years is more adoption of open telemetry in AWS services and other uh, cloud providers. Yeah, that's actually uh, something that I completely forgot to ask you about observability. Uh, and one of the things that uh, I found really useful, uh, I use uh, personally, I use Lumigo. And uh, one of the great things about Lumigo is that it supports a lot of uh, event triggers for Lambda. So when you have an uh, even complex uh, you know, chains like Lambda going to SNS, SQS, Lambda to event bridge to Lambda to something else, uh, you can see the whole chain. So when it comes to end-to-end um, you know, -end test failing, that's actually a really good time for me to figure out, okay, can I actually debug this problem 
because when you got a test, you've got a controlled environment, it's a lot easier compared to, you know, in production, you've got 10,000 events per second. How do you even then figure out which one failed and what's the cause of that failure? So Lumigo has been really easy, good for me in terms of development, but also in production as well. And one of the things that a lot of customers have asked from Lumigo is uh, support for open telemetry so that they can get the data out of Lumigo into something else, which I think they do support now for uh, containers. I, I don't, I'm not uh, that deep into the conversations there, but I think for Lambda, there's some specific challenges with uh, getting that, emitting those uh, telemetry data to open telemetry formats for Lambda. But yeah, it's something that does seem to be getting a lot of traction. And I believe uh, AWS has been adding support for open telemetry for CloudWatch, uh, I believe. And uh, maybe some of the other services just, you know, you have to get it through CloudWatch and then get them out into your open telemetry supporting system. So are you guys right now using mostly the sort of native services like CloudWatch logs and uh, uh, X-Ray? Yeah, so X-Ray doesn't work for me. I don't like it. It's too expensive and it doesn't give me the insights that I need. It's way too, it really flattens your data way too much or you have to find one specific trace, but it's not the right solution for my problems. We do use a CloudWatch kind of extensively still, but mostly for aggregated insights. So alarms on the number of maybe Lambda function failures or messages on an SQS queue or number of 400 or 500 uh, status codes on APIs, those kinds of things. Uh, but that doesn't give you insight on specific problems that might hit a subset of your requests or a subset of your customers or a subset of your applications. So what we currently do is emit open telemetry using the official open telemetry SDKs. We use the Python one, and then we emit that to a Kinesis data stream. And then from Kinesis, we read it to build some, some insights and analytics that we use internally. But we also forward those traces to Honeycomb, where we do our deep dives and, and dashboarding and so on. Okay, so I guess the, the trade-off there is that you're adding a bit of a latency for invocations so that you can send data from your collecting agents to Kinesis. But I guess if it's mostly doing event-driven architecture, you're not dealing with user-facing latency. So adding 10, 20 milliseconds is not going to be the big issue, I imagine. It's single-digit latency, so it's generally 5 or 6 MS added to write to Kinesis. And that's also the reason why we chose Kinesis as our, let's say, in-between buffer for our open telemetry data, because AWS does have a sort of out-of-the-box solution for open telemetry, which is called ADOT, the Amazon distribution for open telemetry. But that actually runs a local server in your Lambda extensions and you talk to the server and then the server offloads it to wherever you're sending it. But then that offload is part of your Lambda invocation and that, because it's a web request. So it might actually add 200 or maybe 300 milliseconds depending on where your observability backend is hosted. And that latency is added to every single Lambda invocation. And the, the, the processing time is not even a problem because you do it at the end of your request. But the cost is a problem because if we run a billion events and each of those billion events adds 200 ms of latency that's a lot, lot of dollars that you pay in invocation time so that's why we first offload to kinesis in single digit latency and then from kinesis buffer every minute to our backend 
I guess uh, if they add support for that uh, Amazon distribution for open telemetry to support Kinesis as a target, then the, maybe that will solve the problem. Yes and no, because what that thing actually does is run a service that's called the Open Telemetry Collector. That's a Go application, which has a startup time and everything. And that's the part that I do not want. <laughs> so we just, because Open Telemetry is an open format, we just wrote our own extension and our own exporter to Open Telemetry, which does nothing more than just batch those telemetry data and forward it to Kinesis. And what, what I would really love, and that's discussions I'm having with AWS, is for Lambda to emit OpenTelemetry natively so that I don't have to run an extension and I don't have to run a Kinesis data stream. But that's uh, for the future, I think. Okay. Yeah, they have done quite a lot of changes uh, in that particular space, including the ability to use extensions to ship your logs somewhere else and disable CloudWatch altogether. Because uh, a lot of people have uh, complained about the cost of CloudWatch logs, plus they use something else anyway. So you're kind of double paying for your logs uh, with Lambda as well as you know, whatever thing, other thing you use. Okay, I think we are coming up to the hour now. So as, again, I want to thank you so much uh, for your time, Luke. And I think I found your talk on EDA and testing. So I'll put that in the show notes as well, along with uh, the careers uh, page for PostNL. I guess in that case, I want to thank you again and uh, hopefully maybe see you in person somewhere in Amsterdam soon. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. It was a great talk. And maybe we'll catch each other at reInvent. I'm not going to reinvent this year, just yet, not quite ready to do a long distance travel. Went to go to EDA, came back with COVID, so I'm a bit worried about <laughs> traveling somewhere too far where I can't just easily get home. <laughs> but for now, I guess maybe we can catch up in Amsterdam at some point. Sounds good. Cool. Take it easy, man. All right. Thanks, John. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.